A brief disclaimer. Parts of this interview discuss publicly traded securities. This discussion is for informational purposes only and does not represent investment advice of any kind. At the time of recording, the principals of MJ Research Corps had long positions in Columbia Care, Cresco Labs, Cure Relief, Green Thumbs Industries, Harborside, Mercer Park Acquisition Corp., Schwaze, and WM Technology. The principals of Eighth Revolution have multiple positions across the industry. Our content is intended for informational entertainment purposes only. We encourage you to seek independent financial advice from a professional to verify any informational claims you hear on our podcast. Thank you, and let's get into it. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Colin Farian and Mike Regan of MJ Research. Gentlemen, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Great. Thank you so much for having us, Brian. Yeah, we're stoked to kind of dive into a variety of different topics. And I think before we can get into MJ Research and, the, and your backgrounds, I think we should start with one of the hardest questions there is in the game, which is living in your cease, gentlemen, who is your ideal cannabinoid session with? Colin, go first. Ideal cannabinoid discussion? Session. Session. So a smoke session. Session. Yeah. Session. Ooh, man, it's hard because there's a lot like between you almost have to subsection it between the folks that really established the industry and the folks that are moving it along. I would say in the folks that are moving along, Ben Kobler is probably an easy option. And folks that have got us to where we are now. I mean, is Steve D'Angelo too easy of an option? I go with those two. Mike? Uh, I guess sort of implicit in that is... Are you saying like we're actually everyone smoking up and actually uh, discussing everything? Because yeah. I'm actually not an enormous consumer. But I actually do have a good memory of one, which was uh, the fish show in Worcester in June 2012, where I think the entire hockey arena was hotboxed. So that was a that was a pretty good smoke session of uh, you know just really good music and then you know just a good vibe for I don't know ten thousand people. That's nice for the ten thousand people to put that on for everyone else. <laughs> I was more amazed as like, I've seen this in a minivan. I've never seen this in the DCU center. All right. So what are your guys' choices? Well, you're going to have to have us come back for that. So, uh, uh, let's go go for it, Kellen. Elon Musk, right? Yeah. Just like Joe Rogan on his podcast. It'd be nice to have him on and smoke some weed and chat. What about you, Brian? Mark Cuban, probably. He'd probably be too too high energy for me, though. It'd probably give me some anxiety because I we'd just be ripping through ideas, and I'd be like, "All right, well, this session went completely." <laughs> let's head back to the to the question. So let's dive into your backgrounds. Obviously, cannabis is a really unique space. How did either of you guys get into the space, Mike? You want to go first? Sure. In terms of getting into the cannabis space, I basically joined about two years ago. Well, it really, I guess again more about three years ago. My background is uh, basically a lifelong long short. Uh, equity investor, uh, various hedge funds, and on the sell side, uh, doing primarily fundamental, you know, bottoms up uh, research, you know, investment research, uh, but have done some quant as well. Uh, a few years ago, I was looking at uh, Scott's Miracle Grow on something totally unrelated to cannabis. Uh, it was a pricing power thesis versus Home Depot and Lowe's. And I had to figure out what this Hawthorne division was uh, they had, which, you know, was became pretty quickly obvious what it actually was really doing. So that, and I was like, this is actually pretty interesting, which also coincided, I guess, with the Canadian 
you know, the Canadian stocks ripping up to insane valuations. Uh, through that, just doing that research, I found MJ Bizdale is a good source of information for the industry. You know, just looking at to educate myself on like what this whole thing could be. And then they had a job posting for we're launching a premium financial service. Uh, we need someone like we can teach you cannabis, but we need someone who knows everything that's not cannabis, like, you know, financial analysis, company analysis, company strategy, you know, valuation, things like that. So I joined them in 2019 uh, to write for their their premium investment service. They were calling it investor intelligence at the time. And then that was going great until COVID hit uh, and they had to retrench given, you know, that uh, there was no conference in Vegas, uh, you know, no MJ BizCon. Uh, but I still thought the general concept was a good idea and you know, got pretty convinced of the overall long-term macro freight train investment theme, you know, for the next 10, 20 years, you know, I think cannabis will be a pretty interesting uh, investment theme to, to know better and has a lot of market inefficiencies. So I've launched MJ Research Co. to basically continue that concept of, you know, institutional professional grade investment research on this nascent industry that's you know going to have a lot of lights to it and, you know, a lot of long and I think eventually short opportunities across both this sector and other sectors and, you know, whole supply chain and disrupting traditional industries as well. So that's, that's basically what that brings me to here. Uh, and I can let Colin jump in on, uh, on his thoughts. <laughs> so I started like pretty traditional finance background um, up in Craig Hallam in Minneapolis, which is a boutique research-driven investment bank, and was lucky enough to get hired for a long short fund in Boulder, Colorado. And after a couple of years working, uh, doing equity research analysts, uh, analysis on the buy side, I actually underwrote a company called M. Hardeen back in 2016, 2017, or 2015, maybe. Regardless, this was at the time when cannabis companies were literally grown out of a storage locker in Boulder. They had rented out three of them, tore down the walls. They had this huge cultivation just like right off of Pearl Street, which is downtown Boulder, if you're familiar. So underwrote that. That did not go well. Uh, you can still, I think it's publicly traded at this time, but sparked my interest in the industry and moved from equity research and want to get a little bit more empathy for the operator role. So I switched into the cannabis industry, where at first I had co-founded a company that was doing computer vision over crops uh, called Deep Green. We were detecting like pests and pathogens and doing a bunch of IPM work with companies. And that transitioned into a role at Urban Grow, which is a picks and shovels company, where I was directing uh, all MSO accounts, uh, doing strategic operations for cultivations and then ongoing uh, operations for cultivations like maintenance, IPM, and then design strategy. And then I found Mike probably like a couple years later, uh, listening to a podcast and was thinking that I want to get back in the investment world. And so I reached out to Mike and said, hey, I want to build the exact same thing that you're building. Um, would, you, would you have me? And here we are today. A true cannabis love story. Let's dive into MJ Research. You know, what is the value that it brings to the industry and, and who does it really target from an informational sense? Oh, well, like I was saying, it's, we, we think we're stronger together than apart as well. So you know, it was like, this will, this will work. Uh, we, you know, our strengths uh, sort of complement each other. Just in terms of I have more experience, you know, living through the internet boom and bust and resurgence and the housing boom and bust and, uh, you know, multiple market cycles and looking at every industry. And Colin has super deep knowledge on, you know, the plant and uh, cannabis itself. In terms of the, the firm, you know, we're basically trying to target accredited 
institutional grade or just in, you know institutional investors. We're basically providing what the research that we would want if we were running you know a fund or if we were at a fund and we're like, hey, this has been morning email to my portfolio manager the things. I've been saying that we should be doing. You know, we're basically trying to bring that institutional level, professional grade analysis to this sector. Uh, yeah, because we, we we see a need for it, uh, and as it increasingly matures, I think that's also there's going to be an increase in demand for that uh, among a lot of investors that currently can't, you know, because of the federal legality of their own, you know, investment mandates or the, you know, where things trade, they can't invest directly in the space, but we think that's going to keep changing with increasing legalization. So, and on top of that, it's a very, very complex space, you know, especially like on the capital structures, we can go into that later. I've never seen capital structures this complex. The regulations are always changing. It's a bunch of micro markets. So that's basically what we're, we're trying to do. So we're, you know, providing We've sort of mentally divided into tools, which are, you know, the things that investors need if they want to, you know, truly have accurate, actionable information, you know, sort of make their own decisions. Uh, you know, these are the tools they'll need, you know, in terms of like our, our dynamic comp table, we're working on some supply demand analyses, normalizing things across industries to help compare the companies. Um, and then also, you know, just actionable company specific research, like we think this company is interesting, you should buy it. This is, we've done the research on it. You know, here's the consensus view. Here's our contrarian take uh, on it. And, you know, here's our valuation. We're, we're balancing those out as we're, as we're building those up. Now, if there's anything else I missed, Colin, that uh, you'd like to throw in? No, I think that's that's great, Mike. Um, I, I think what, what got us here and, you know, what makes us different is that when we were both evaluating the business model, we found that a lot of the folks that are providing research have a innate bias for whatever reason. If you're a sell-side bank, you're trying to get a banking deal. If you're running a research site that's driven by ads, you often have relationships with the folks that are providing the advertising with you. So what we have built is a no pay-to-play web or platform uh, for investment research. And I think that sets us apart as being you know, you know, skeptics and neutral among all the ideas we're looking at. So before we dive into some of the trends, do each of you have a favorite operator from like a large scale and a small scale that you're kind of rooting for or one that's kind of caught your eye that, you, you know, you have some information that you can share that just kind of gives some insight into some of the tremendous value that MJ Research brings to the table? Yeah, I'll start. But I'll do a contrarian one to, to kick us off, especially right now. Cresco Labs has been trading down pretty significantly. The capital structure is not great. The financial disclosures and accounting have been not great. But an operational standpoint, if you look at their organizational structure and their team relative to the other MSOs, they're about as mature as it gets. These folks have uh, an entire lean manufacturing division that's going out and figuring out how to optimize processes from dispensary down to cultivation. And this is a team of 25 to 35 um, across the entire... Um, and GTI has a similar organizational structure, but it's, I mean, honestly, it's been mostly replicated from the folks across the street at Cresco Labs. Um, and they do really deep data analysis on every single decision that they're making, um, which I think is a unique differentiator, whereas everyone else in the industry seems like they're just trying to keep up with operations. And it's like, they're going to, like, they're going to throw a reverse osmosis system in their cultivation just because they don't exactly know where the city water is testing that. And they think that that might be a fix. Whereas you're going to have Cresco Labs is running individual pilots in a single grow room at each of their cultivation facilities and then making that decision, which is something that's always really impressed me. Mike? 
Uh, so well, it's, it's what you're saying, you know, something you really like and you're rooting for. I try to, you know, try to always be independent on the, you know, I have, you have an investment thesis. It's a good buy at this price. I think it can go to that price for a specific reason. Uh, well, I'll go into a little bit that uh, we wrote up for our premium clients uh, a couple of weeks ago when it was about 16 was uh, weed maps, which now is just de-spacs. Uh, we wrote about when it was uh, still silver spike, but, you know, looking forward on it. When I first came out, I was very excited about it because I've been looking for the, uh, you know, the NASDAQ traded ancillary company that has a good business model that can, uh, you know, at this point be owned by institutions looking for cannabis exposure that can't actually touch the plants. Uh, and also doesn't have, you know, doesn't have a lot of the, any of the questions around, um, you know, supply and demand on the uh, plant side. And then when Maps came out, you know, we started writing it up actually back in January. Um, and those early riots are actually available for, uh, you know, they're free. You just have to sign up. The The concern was always that the uh, illicit stores that they had in the past and the, the investigations as to whether they were still aiding and abetting that. So first it was saying, you know, they removed all the stores back in 2019 in California that were unlicensed. Uh, and when we started doing our research, we actually then found that there was, uh, you know, some stores that seem to be taking advantage of a, a like a CBD only loophole where the listing is CBD only. But if you look around at other sites, you know, if it's a store, it's a 123 Main Street CBD. There happens to be 123 Main Street THC at the same address with the same logo. It's like you're not selling THC on weed maps. So, yeah, you're not breaking any laws, but it looks like you're, you know, looks like you're doing something else on the side. Then it was like this seems a little too risky because you can't capitalize revenue that could vanish overnight, right? If, if there's a risk that um, government cracks down and says, okay, you know, 300 of your listings have to be taken off immediately, then, you, you know, investors don't like that. And what we actually discovered uh, then in May was they seem to have actually cleaned up, you know, all those, all those listings that we had originally found back in January were then gone. And then on top of that, they uh, also removed the unlicensed stores in Canada which then if you actually do the math, it looked like all the Canadian revenue was unlicensed. So they basically abandoned all of the Canadian revenue. And that actually, in my mind, is a huge positive because it shows that this management team is actually serious. They're actually walking the talk, essentially. So then that actually then lets it have a higher multiple if the revenue stream is you know, truly clean in that respect. And it also forestalls that the investigation from the but the subpoena from uh, you know the, the DOJ, um, if they're actually saying like you know the thesis is we're a partner to the industry in terms of or a partner to the regulators in terms of only having licensed stores, so then taking that risk away, then you're just left with two sided market, you know, high barriers to entry on that in their markets where they dominate, you know, generating twenty five percent margins with a pricing story that they're both increasing the value and showing that their products are you know deliver more value to their customers and raising the prices on that which is a huge benefit for margin expansion. And then also the upsell on you know, software as a service, the adjacent software technology that dispensaries need. So you combine that and then it's also, you know, trades on the NASDAQ doesn't actually touch the plant, doesn't pay 280E taxes today. You know, if I'm a big mutual fund that just wants to own a tech company that happens to sell to the cannabis industry, but is not a cannabis company specifically, I can actually buy it. You know, that all sets up for what I think is a pretty interesting long case with a good business model that generates cash that is actually earnings positive after taxes and, you know, has a, you know, uh, still then benefits from, you know, uh, 
the overall canvas long thesis of increasing penetration across the U.S. So that's it in a nutshell. We'll go into sort of where I think the stock will go. We, you know, <laughs> we'll have to keep something for the premium clients in terms of our actual upsides and downsides and the risks and the such. But that's that's in a nutshell that uh, I think that's a pretty compelling case in cannabis right now and the cannabis sector overall. Hopefully it wasn't too long-winded. No, I think that's really strong. And I, I think it, you did a really good job of teasing at the end. If you want to see, you know, the other information, sign up and we can plug the link right there in that moment. So I think you did a really good job there. So let's kind of get into some of the trends that you're seeing from a macro standpoint. Obviously, like you were saying, Mike, the cannabis industry has got a variety of different issues between 2AD the state-by-state issue. So what macro trends are you using to kind of overall guide the industry and kind of shed some light on, on that approach? Uh, just in terms of overall macro trends, I mean, it's more, you know, understanding the individual markets and, you know, sort of the individual margin structures of those on a macro basis. And this is more longer term that, you know, the trend has picked up recently, but I don't think it ever really went away. It's just it was dormant for a while will be consolidation, right? There's, you know, in 10 years, there's probably going to be fewer larger operators, at least on the public side versus, you know, the ones we have today. Uh, you've already seen, you know, True Leave is acquiring Harvest. Um, you know, someone said they're like, oh, this, you know, this means mega mergers are back. So like, I don't think they ever really went away. It's just that the industry will consolidate over time. This one just happened to hap- happen now. We have our own reasons why we suspect it happens, you know, on May 10th specifically, you know, versus in a year, you know, two years ago, uh, related to harvest capital structure and voting structure. But you know, that, that's just an overall trend of, you know, who is gaining increasing scale. And at this point, that has a benefit for access to capital in terms of, uh, you know, the large players typically have sort of better access to capital and at lower costs of capital. That probably won't always be the case, though. Uh, you know, if we have increasing legalization or safe banking, you know, that, that's more of a macro trend of um, what levers within the companies actually start to change. Uh, and actually, we just wrote this up about inflation and cannabis. Cannabis currently has sort of a the, the cottage industry nature of it and the nascentness of it leads to opportunities long term to, you know, improve with scale and new processes and automation. You know, a lot of um, you know, they can probably cut costs in a lot of ways. And that's more a longer term trend that we've been looking at. And actually, Colin, you're probably better to speak about the, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the scalability questions. But, you know, we're sort of looking at who can operate efficiently. And that doesn't necessarily mean who has the highest margins today, because I could have 100% margins tomorrow if I fired everybody. And June would be a great month, but then July would fall off a cliff, right? You can't operate a business that way. So just because you have high margins today doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be able to maintain those margins as your business gets bigger or as, you know, as the time changes. So I don't know, Colin, if you want to reflect on some of those concepts. Yeah, I'll start with the yeah, macro trends that, uh, on, that we've been looking into. I, I can note are the scalability and then supply demand. And so the scalability side is just that, I mean, you guys know as well as anyone that MSOs at this point are much closer to startups than they are to established public companies um, like incumbents and industrials, right? So when you look under the hood at these companies, it's just mayhem, you know, like they're scaling quickly, they're hiring quickly, they're they're acquiring companies. And, you know, it's just like from the outside, it looks really neat. And when CEOs go and tell you, like, we've got plans A, B, and C, but when you look at the inside and like, you know, going into the offices, it's like people are flying all over the place, not enough desks for people type of uh, structure. And so you look at the scalability, it's often that 
how disciplined are they being about making sure that their business grows? Because often in that dynamic, you have counter issue of making sure that your business can scale is going to hurt your near-term margins. And that puts this, you know, this like temporary bear thesis in front of investors where they're like, well, their margins are not nearly as good as X, Y, and Z, but in reality, they're prepping for the next five years, whereas companies X, Y, and Z are only prepping for today. And I think that's really important piece that you have to look at when evaluating these companies because you want to hold them for five to 10 years. There's plenty of upside um, as the industry continues to grow. Um, and so that's one of the macro trends we're looking at. It's everything from like, do they connect their ERP to uh, their POS and their retailers, right? Like, is the POS and the retailer connected to a live menu that's got real integrations? Or are they basically selling inventory on their live menu that they don't have that their dispensary that ticks off customers when they go to the store because the product isn't actually there, right? This stuff happens all the time. Then the other item is supply demand, where you know the companies that have the best gross margins right now are usually in states that have limited license and high flower prices. And so we've been digging into looking at the potential supply in any given market relative to the demand today and then the demand five years from now. So just assuming that the entire per capita population of an individual market, say like Colorado, you know, scales to maturity. And wherever that maturity is, Colorado continues to grow. So it's kind of interesting to see that move on. But if you look at a state like California, where we're doing a, a deep dive on right now, the potential capacity of California, they could plant more cannabis than the entire state would need multiple times over. Now, it doesn't necessarily equate into low prices because not everyone's putting plants in the ground and not everyone's actually using their licenses. But if they wanted to, and as more legislation comes on to allow more outdoor grows and greenhouses in these you know, perfect agricultural markets like or sub-markets like counties, Santa Barbara, uh, Ventura, Monterey, uh, Sonoma, um, that will change the entire direction of the pricing. And eventually, they'll be supplied to the entire country. But for now, it puts risk on the near-term pricing trend. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked, the podcast. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind cannabis-infused getaway, I invite you to join me in the beautiful wine and weed country of Sonoma County, California. As a cannabis lifestyle guide, I've cultivated a one-of-a-kind farm stay experience where you can enjoy the casually baked lifestyle and the magic of sun-grown cannabis farms and vineyards. Now, if you're into wine, weed, or both, get ready to have a high time customized just for you. Learn more at casuallybaked.com backslash travel. That's casuallybaked.com backslash travel. I think that's perfectly said. And I want to dive into, into Callan because I know we've been to some operators that are one of the largest in the space and been overwhelmingly surprised by the way they handle their business. And we kind of were blown away to think that like these guys are doing tremendous numbers. And we got in there and it's like you were saying, Colin, it's, it's chaotic. And we kind of looked at each other like, wow. And it, it's one of those where we just kind of got like inside look and just couldn't believe how that was going. So Callan, you want to shed some light on, on that experience and, and kind of piggyback off what Colin was saying? Yeah, that's funny that you brought that up because that's exactly where my head was at. And I was also debating. I was like, probably shouldn't say the name of the company or, <laughs> or anything like that. But it's, name. It's, completely, it's completely accurate, right? Like we went into their facility and checked it out. And I was just like, what are you guys doing? I was like, this is a total dumpster fire. This is one thing. You guys are not doing that. I was like, all of this other stuff you guys already bought, no one unboxed it. It's just sitting here in a corner and you're outsourcing that. It's like, what are you guys doing? And so it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. And just like you said, people are running around. They're like, we don't have enough boxes 
for the cartridges, like the, the wrong cartridges, like this order was supposed to go out yesterday. And they're just all like, what do we do? And it's, it's just insane. And they need high quality people and the training and all these things are just so underappreciated. And like in a, an established ind- industry where they have this system for onboarding people and getting them trained and having them all check all these boxes and having them competent, like all those systems are, are in place yet. And they're all so fluid within these companies because they're all still trying to figure it out because it's not like there's a, a rubric for how you run a, a company that has operations in every different state that's a, a micro market. You know what I mean? So they're, they're having to figure this all out on the fly, which is clearly has been uh, a challenge. You know what I mean? Funny, because like if you didn't know them, you would have trouble imagining that they were multi-billion dollar industry <laughs> leaders. We kind That's of assumed exactly. that, that, that they'd be so much more put together and that none of these issues would arise. And then we kind of like took a step back and we thought about it. It's like they're scaling so fast that they're not even able to consider it, right? They, they bought us equipment because someone made that decision. And then as Kellen said, he's like, they've got a million dollar paperweight in the corner just collecting dust. And they need that piece of equipment that they're outsourcing because likely the person that made that decision got hired and, and moved on to the next role. And then the person that came in was like, I didn't buy that. I don't know where that goes. And I mean, this is the part of the industry that kind of excites me the most, because unless you've been there, you don't realize that like, that's all easy money that they're going to, once they get like in a rhythm and start optimizing. Yeah. I think, I think that points to, I guess, two other trends that we see. And the first is, you know, cannabis industry is not just, you know, people growing the plants and selling dispensaries. It's the entire supply chain that will need to grow up along with this. Like part of the reason it might be so chaotic is that there isn't the go-to, a normal company just calls up, you know, the go-to outsourcer, like, hey, we need this to be done. Just do it. Okay, fine. They do it. There, there's a whole supply chain that hasn't been built yet that needs to be built. So it'll be all these other companies that, yeah, we don't actually touch the plant. We don't actually, you know, we service the cannabis industry and help them you know, better organize it. And then also just sort of how the margin structure changes. And this is more for investors that we, we try to think a lot about, you know, is um, the margins you see today will probably change versus in the future in terms of first, it's how, many, how much you have to scale up that infrastructure as you grow. Second is also what happens as, especially with 280E, I, I wonder if that is, at least for the U.S. operators, sort of propping up some of the margins because implicitly any margin has to sort of cover the taxes, right? So if all of a sudden you take 280 away, you know, then it's not like all that money just flows to investors and investors just get all that. And the management teams are going to look at it and think, okay, well, now we're not writing that, you know, check to the government. What can we do with that instead? We can reinvest it in marketing, reinvest in hiring more people, maybe even reinvest it in, you know, either lower prices or, you know, uh, you've seen in competitive consumer industries, they quote, invest in price. The grocery stores do that all the time. And that basically is just a price cut. So, you know, that if you take out that enormous cost to them right now, and then no one has it, you know, uh, what I've seen in other industries, like this happened in 2017 with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, when, you know, the government just universally lowered the corporate tax rate for everybody from like 35 to 21%. Businesses that had strong you know, they weren't very competitive, bought back stock, but companies that were in competitive consumer businesses and industrial businesses, a lot of them just spent more money on the things they were already doing. Like they accelerated uh, strategic growth plans or they were forced to give people raises 
because um, like, well, you know, we're, we're reinvesting back in our employees. We're reinvesting in price. We're reinvesting in, you know, product quality. And, you know, it's not like that money was just kept by, you know, kept by investors. But since EBITDA, which is what the industry is usually valued at, is a pre-tax measure, you know, you have this scenario where EBITDA margins go down, net income margins or the after-tax margins actually go up. And it's a question of our investors looking closely enough at that dynamic. Because if you just see declining EBITDA margins, you'll freak out. You're like, oh, this is terrible. Your margins are going down. I don't want this. It's like, well, they're going down, but you're making more money. So that's actually a good thing. And our cost of capital is lower because... You know, a tax cuts the cheapest form of capital possible, right? I don't have to, the government's just not taking as much money. Great. You know, I don't have to like go, you know, pay interest to debt holders or dilute the equity holders with more shares, right? So it's actually all good, but not in the simplistic, oh, you know, 21% of gross profit goes into my pocket, says the investor. That won't happen. Yeah, nothing in cannabis is simple like that. So I want to ask a different question. Vertical integration, does that help the operators, you think? Because we were talking about all the challenges with scaling. So vertical integration as a whole, are we in favor of it? And from an investment side, do you think it's beneficial? Do the investors understand the challenges and the complications of being vertically integrated and having to have all these efforts and all these resources? And then the inability to kind of perfect a certain area of the supply chain. Colin, do you want to go first? I might tease and then hand off to Mike. So I think that there's, there's a bit of nuance that Vertical integration is good for, from an investment standpoint and for operators right now, in the future, it won't be. So at this point, you've got relatively wide margins across the supply chain. You move from cultivation to processing, uh, cultivation manufacturing to processing to dispensaries, even delivery. But eventually, that gets more competitive. So in these limited license, let's back up. In these limited license states, you have vertical integration. You can sell from your cultivation to your retail or even doing your cultivation to wholesale and make plenty of money. Now, you see margin compression when you look at a competitive market like California or Oklahoma, even Colorado, with the exception of this year where margins have gotten better back to a better place. But take California, for example, when the prices go down, you see margins getting squeezed across the supply chain. It generally starts further downstream and then works its way back up and you have a shakeout of operators, which is not obviously great for investors. But if you're in Pennsylvania, you basically make money hand over fist. Florida is a better example um, because you're vertically integrated and because everyone else is locked out. Now, I think in the future, as it gets more competitive, more players come into the space and more people are specialized. Like There's a very low probability that someone that has operations in 12 different states and has vertical integrations is going to be able to compete with a herbal in California, right? It's a super well-run uh, business run by people that have former experience in food distribution. The idea that like someone will be able to compete for a core competency when that's all they do every single day seems uh, far-fetched. Um, so that's my general take. Good for now, bad for later. Mike? The general concept is exactly, it's, it's you know, Thinking fourth dimensionally, if you will, it's when, you know, when in the industry growth cycle is it attractive. Right now, the lack of a reliable supply chain across the whole sector is what we were talking about before. That there's going to be this whole ancillary supply chain that needs to get built as well. You kind of have to be vertically integrated because, you know, the one thing that's your bottleneck to your product, if you can't get it, you got to do it yourself. You know, writing up that, you know, Ford for Model Ts during after World War One needed to be vertically integrated. They owned forests and iron mines and railroads and glassworks, you know, because they were sick of supply chain disruptions and there just wasn't a reliable supply chain. But Ford doesn't do any of that today because there's an entire mature supply chain. 
uh, we're nowhere near that yet. So today, you know, having the, the benefit is having the greater act, you know, guaranteed supply of products, control over your quality, you know, and things like that, that is more important than, you know, shaving an extra 5% off of a supply contract. But you fast forward and all of a sudden if there's robust wholesale markets or companies that specialize in each part of the supply chain that, you know, when you have that specialization, they'll probably be able to do it better and more efficiently because they're, you know, like Colin said, they're really good at that one thing that it makes more sense to, you know, it's cheaper and better just to hire the outsource this to the person who knows how, who knows how to do it perfectly, but we're not there yet. And then, yeah, it's also a lot of laws force that, and you can kind of get away with it because it is still micro markets, but you know, if all of a sudden you took away those micro markets, you're going to see, I think a lot more specialization over the longer term. It's a, that's a general answer, but that's, that's, I think where we're going over the long term. Dylan, you want to touch on that? As far as vertical integration goes, I think the one area I look at it is more of an optimistic perspective. I think that vertical integration is really good for all these companies to approach right now because all of these different management teams are have strengths and they all have weaknesses. And I think in 10 years, they're going to figure out that, hey, our team is really, really good at this section of the supply chain. Right. And then they're going to cut the fat and then that's going to help establish that robust ancillary wholesale market and that supply chain for outsourcing. Right. And you're going to see all these companies kind of just go and fit into what they're really good at. Right. And so if they're doing everything and they find out, hey, we have employees that are absolutely phenomenal at understanding purity of water and all these things. Right. From a a cultivation perspective. And then they double down on that and then they start outsourcing the other things. I think that that's going to be really, really strong for the whole industry as a whole, right? And so I think that you're going to see more and more companies start to put resources into the areas that they're really skilled at, right? Whether that's retail, production, or extraction, or if it, or cultivation, or even some of the ancillary services like Weed Maps and other companies like that, right? And so I think it's really good for the industry. I think it, it's it's tough now, though, because these companies are forced to do things on their own and it's going to significantly affect the margins because they aren't as good at it as say another operator or uh, a company down the line in 10 years. Right. And it also makes it really, really messy. What what are your thoughts on vertical integration, Brian? I think everyone said it perfectly here. I just don't think people outside the industry realize actually how challenging that is. And Colin, you, you lightly touched on that when you have 12 different States with 12 different regulations and you're trying to be vertically scaled the challenge and the complexity of being good at everything is really, really, really hard. At the end of the day, right, supply chain disruption, if you don't have flower products and you're not controlling supply chain, you're not selling flower products. So at the end of the day, you kind of have to, and we all agree. And I think that's part of the excitement that I personally have is that once some of these challenges are lifted off these operators and they can really double down on what you were saying, Kellen, on what they're good at, you're going to see kind of the best of the best kind of move to the forefront. And then at the end of the day, you'll see those numbers kind of follow too. But right now we're all in agreement kind of has to be the way it has to be good now, bad later. Well, I guess an interesting point that like a trend we've noticed recently is the larger operators are starting to invest more in cultivation. Like you just saw Curaleaf just bought, uh, where they're in the process of buying Los Sueños, which is the largest cannabis grower in Colorado is basically, you know, a giant outdoor farm in Pueblo. And that was interesting to me. You know, if you look back a year ago, you know, Cureleaf bought Blue Kudu, which was a, a little edibles kitchen and, and processor. 
it, it wasn't to buy the blue kudu brand. I'm guessing it was just buying the assets and the distribution that they had in I don't know, 200 stores at the time. It's probably more now to you know basically convert that to select to blow out the select brand. But I guess someone in that company has decided we need to have a better control of the supply, and they bought the largest supplier that you know I think to date has been mostly wholesale. You know they sold most of their goods wholesale to other growers. You know what happens when Cureleaf you know then buys that largest supplier. You know, are they are they looking to basically sell wholesale in Colorado, or are they looking to you know guarantee supply and then you know how, how much of that supply is just going to go into select? Uh, you basically go into the blue kudu kitchen and then just pr- pump out select products for the Colorado market. I'm not sure, but it's you know it's interesting in that we're, we're seeing this trend of additional you know people investing in additional larger scale cultivation. You know, stuff Columbia Care. Uh, buying that giant greenhouse in Long Island, uh, you know, and, and Blast House is coming public by the SPAC. That's, uh, you know, they're going to have a giant, they're basically converted, you know, giant greenhouse in California, you know, to then blow out that more in a, in a retail wholesale, you know, joint, uh, joint thing. And that goes back to the whole, over time, you're probably going to see greater scale. And you know, the question is the larger operators that have probably better access to capital right now, consolidating a bunch of smaller growers, then you'll have, you know, that, that can be the, the step function up in sort of margin and capital availability near term and the longer term, how much cultivation do they want or need? Uh, but that's a far longer term question. There's plenty of cultivation to consolidate in the near term. Would the thing go like better to have and not need than need and not have? And kind of when you relate it back to the pandemic, when you would go to the food store and there'd be nothing left, but like a couple like leftover pieces of bread and people are like, well, I guess this will do. Sometimes it feels like when people go to a dispensary and they're out of products and there's like a couple random pieces left, people are like, well, that's perfect. Like I, I came here, I waited in line for two hours. Like, and this is all that's left. Perfect. I'll take that. And right now, like, we don't really know what the demand of cannabis is. We just know it's more and more. So let's go into another trend. We talked about the trends that you're seeing. Let's talk about trends you're not seeing that you'd like to see. What type of trends are out there that you think we'll see soon? Colin? I guess it's an easy segue. Like trends that we'd like to see soon would be more operators focusing on their core competencies. So as Kellen mentioned, like, that's a great point that, a lot of these folks, you're starting to see who wants to be good at what. And sometimes we're even seeing who's good at what, but it's not always the, the same. And so when you look at maybe like the season cure leaf example, right? Does anybody really want to own a uh, outdoor farm in Southern Colorado? No, probably not. But if you can sell your products at a price competitive rate to go and get market share and get more distribution doors, because you want to build a brand, then it's super, super valuable. And that's exactly why Cureleaf is going out there. So yeah, at this point in time, it's kind of like a necessary evil to go out and find these uh, certain types of assets, because at the end of the day, like there's a ton of variables. You guys know, uh, as well as anyone, given the exposure to Colorado, that like it's we've got really tough weather to forecast. And it's like the growing season is long, but like the idea that, you know, the chance of you having a snowstorm in September is not low. And you're literally out there handpicking flower at that point, like the day before the snowstorm comes, because you've only had a day of warning. Coming back to the point though, seeing folks that go into focusing on their key competencies, 
um, which you've seen, I think you use like Cresco with wholesale. Um, they've shown that they really want to focus on pushing wholesale and getting distribution doors. Um, and that's fine. And that's great. There's a place in the market for that. I think you've historically seen like Juicy focus on retail. That's starting to turn a little bit because they want to build margins and so they start to get more cultivations. But I'd like to see more focus on core competency going forward. And I realize that it's not, you know, especially rational at this point because you have to own across the supply chain, but it'll be interesting to see how that pans out in the future. Mike? Uh, I, I can basically think of two of them. The first one, and we're starting to see this, but um, I mentioned before, is just the complexity of the capital structures with so many warrants and options and converts that I think the overall industry will benefit when those capital structures are simpler and the share counts are simpler from just higher multiples. As uh, you know, at this point, the, I guess most of the investors either don't know or they're close enough to it that they've already done all the math. But as this industry courts more and more institutional investors, it's a question of whether they'll be able to sort of wade through these very complex and it's more of the dynamism of the share count, right? The share count changes as the stock price changes, right? This is basically what the warrants do. So, you know, if you're doing evaluation on a company and you know you think there's a hundred million shares, well, yeah, there's a hundred million shares at ten dollars, but when the stock doubles to $20, all of a sudden, you know, there's 15 million shares and all of a sudden it's not $20 anymore. It's, you know, it's $15 or something like that, right? The industry will benefit overall to the extent that they can use less and less, you know, issue less and less warrants on future uh, capital raises. And I get that that's been in part the capital constrained nature of the sector. So it's slowly happening, but that, that, that I think it will benefit the industry I think, you know, more traditional companies in that supply chain aspect, you know, we'll start to see more traditional companies start to look at supplying this space as just another customer. You know, I guess the, the, the money laundering laws and the banking laws, you know, that can complicate things and, you know, or the insurance, you know, it may be perfectly legal to do something, but you call up your insurance agent and they're like, well, if you supply this cannabis company, all of a sudden your insurance rates are going to quintuple because, you know, this is, crazy risky for us. We're not going to let you do it. So it's effectively, you know, effectively can't service them. You know, I think that's a trend I would like to see change is just the industry gets more, you know, more normalized, just like it's just a standard consumer pharma product. that's going to have a whole agricultural industrial supply chain, just like any other business. And it needs to be supplied by, you know, you do the exact same thing for soft drink company. Why can't you do it for, you know, this cannabis company, right? I think that's coming and that's the trend. I'd like, it's, I'd like to see more of that. And I think you'll, I think you will see more traditional companies start to get involved in the space over time. Guys, I want to talk to you today about one of our new partners, CESC. CESC is a nonprofit organization providing a compelling and complementary alternative. They represent the ability to harness a flexible, collaborative approach to scientific advancements. They are comprised of leading doctors and researchers in the cannabis and cannabinoid science space for almost a decade. Their act first, talk later operating principle has now led to a successful series of disruptive innovations in the cannabis science space. They need your help now. Join them, collaborate with them, or support them. Go to thecesc.org to get involved now. Together, we can change the world. Can I end one more? (laughs) This is not investment-based. But lower THC product, we don't all need to have 25% THC flour or 100 milligram THC drinks. This has got to be a thing of the past. 
And as we get more people that are new to the industry, it becomes a liability more than anything, right? Like a 10 milligram piece of chocolate, just break in half, put less THC in it. More companies will have more luck. Ken's shown that that, that, that can happen. I realize there's barriers to the idea, but uh, it's got to be something that happens in the near future for the CPG companies. That's a whole other conversation for other time because in some people's mind, more is always better, right? And when you're first time into a dispensary and you're not really sure, the higher the number, the more attractive it is. And sometimes the bud tender is more likely to recommend it. And then you've just got yourself a circle of issues because whose role is what? And that's a whole other conversation for another time. But I want to kind of quickly switch gears and go back to the margins conversation. We talked about kind of comparing operators and margins is, a, is an easy way to likely do that, but sometimes it's very misleading. So in your opinions, can you compare operators in the cannabis space solely by margins? And if not, you know, what sort of other initiatives, if you're new to the space, would you use to kind of compare operators to make an investment into the space? I think you, you start with margins, but then it's understanding the stories behind why those margins are the way they are, because you could have a low margin for two reasons. You could have a low margin because you're investing for the future. So if you sort of break it into, well, my, you know, my sustainable margin is, you know, I'm going to make up numbers here that, you know, it's 30, but I'm investing 10% of sales for this infrastructure in the future. That's why it's 20. That's a very different story than, yeah, our product just doesn't have very good branding power and we just have to keep cutting prices because our product sucks and that's how we compete. You know, that that's a very different reason of why are you a 20% margin instead of 30, you know, just to make up round numbers, right? Yeah, that, that requires like going in and understanding, you know, what is the margin structure? Why is it that way? Uh, and then Colin and I have talked with this also just properly adjusting for them because this may also be a, a trend for the overall industry. They would all benefit if they, you know, try to show their, you know, try to report their financials in, you know, sort of as clean a way as possible. You know, more information is always good to make, let investors make more adjustments as they see fit. Um, but sometimes, you know, the headline, you know, adjusted EBITDA might include things that investors would be like, well, is that really one time? Should we really be excluding that? You know, are you just, that's sort of a trick. And it's not just cannabis. A lot of companies will do that. They'll throw recurring things into the one-time line. It's like, well, your one-time expenses are always something big, you know, the individual thing may be one time, but like you always have a big one-time expense. I'm just going to keep that recurring. Right. So that's, it comes down to understanding why they are the way they are. And then I think longer term, you know, comparing it to what similar industries do that aren't even in your same space, right. If, you know, most consumer companies are earning more like 20% margins, how sustainable is a 40% margin? Well, you know, that's the question. And then saying, okay, well, it's different because of this, this, and this. Okay, well, this probably goes away. This may change. And this actually may be permanent. So maybe it's, you know, 30. I mean, I'm just, you know, throw around round numbers. But that concept of what's the story behind them. I mean, you do ultimately have to compare them both on the level, but also the sustainability. That's, that's what I think is most important from like an investment standpoint is it's great what they are, but what are they going to be? Colin? Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty inclusive answer. Um, you know, we would add that like we we were we do checks, you know, behind the margins of the more qualitative items, you know, like who are employees turning over? Are they at 
recruiting other employees from competing MSOs? How is talent acquired basically or lost? Um, where are they investing on their infrastructure side, whether it's capital equipment or they're investing in technology platforms to make, you know, as we talked about before, the scalability, everything more efficient. And then generally, how do they make decisions, which is a tough one to gauge because you kind of have to be speaking with the, the core operating team because generally from the executive team, you get like a pretty templated answer about stuff like that. But you can kind of parse a lot of the takeaways out of looking how historically they've made investments in the past um, and then even how they shape those investments in the public view, because obviously there's always a deeper read than what's in the press release. Yeah, I think those are both really well said. And I think that's exactly the value that, you know, your team brings to the space. So I would encourage anyone who's kind of interested in learning about the industry to kind of dive into MJ Research's platform and to kind of get involved, right? Because the only way to really know is to work with experts like yourself to kind of go there. So before we go into prediction time, we ask our guests a couple of different questions. We'll start with you, Colin. Biggest misconception in the cannabis space? I think we've touched on this quite a bit in the podcast. It's uh, that these billion-dollar industry leaders are all buttoned up and smooth sailing, and it you know operates like Apple or you know some other big industry incumbent. Um, I think that is misunderstood to say the least. Mike, I guess from an investor perspective, I guess maybe you see sometimes this more in the some of the, the companies themselves, but. Yeah, that the cannabis industry is its own unique thing, has its own special valuation metrics and special things. As I see it, it's, you know, it's a rapidly growing growth industry, but it's still, you know, a consumer product with, you know, a capital intensive supply chain that needs to be built out uh, and a capital intensive business. And you should view it within the lens of whatever that's of the consumer or industrial or agricultural portion that, you know, you have to figure out which individual company is actually what it has more or less of each of those things. But it's not like cannabis is really special because of this, this is from the business standpoint, um, to be clear, you know, it's, it's a consumer product. It's rapidly growing, but if you're going to do valuations, you should look out to when the growth slows down, so look out five or 10 years, and then, you know, put normal consumer multiples on that five or 10 years out and then discount it back. But it's not like, oh, you know, this should trade at 50 times revenue because it's cannabis. It's like, no, that's, no one should do that analysis of like, oh, I think it's going to go to 55 times revenue. The reason you do that is because, you know, putting a normal consumer multiple on the far out growth and discounting it back implies 50 times a day, but it's really just, you know, three, four or five times revenue or, you know, a more reasonable net income PE, you know, 20 times PE on my 2030 estimate, right? That, that's how it should be viewed. And that's how we try to view it as, you know, what do you actually do? Okay, you, you cultivate a product and then you process it and then you sell it in a retail establishment. You know, how does that compare to other companies that do something similar? If you could sum up your experience into a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would that be? All experience? What yeah, like any experience, something that you've learned in the cannabis industry that for the next generation, you wanted to pass on a lesson, something that a wide-eyed freshman walking into a college who's eager to get into the cannabis industry and they're, they're ready to start their career when they graduate. What lesson have you learned or main takeaway that you'd want to pass on to them? Something that you could share as like a guidance lesson. I've got two sons. They're not quite college age. They're you know, nine and 11, but I try to do that every day in terms of like, how am I, what am I trying to teach these kids to prepare them for the next you know, 30 years? And it's, 
I don't know, the, the, my general concept is to, you know, think critically for yourself, study history to see what has happened before, because human behavior tends to, I think, repeat itself or, you know, people tend to operate in patterns. So we get good at pattern recognition, but also then think critically for, you know, don't just be stuck with certain analogs of the past. Like, oh, this cannabis example is like, oh, alcohol is prohibited and then went legal. It's going to look exactly like that. It, you know, that can be a, a model to help you think about what will happen in the future, but you still have to think critically, you know, and I guess the other key lesson is just to always try to disprove yourself, right? It's the, the logical concept of like the, with the black swan example, you know, the thousandth white swan doesn't prove that all swans are white. It's that the one black swan disproves that all swans are white. So try to find the thing that if this is my hypothesis, what would disprove it? And then look for that. But those are the, the general lessons I think apply in sort of any environment and help you react quickly to the macro hand that the world de- deals you. Well, I don't think I'm going to top a Nassim Taleb analogy life experience. I'll go higher level uh, just because I don't want to compete. But I think it's, you know, it tends to be like that stereotypical phrase of like, you know, building your network is, I think network is net worth, right? Um, But what I've learned, especially through like coming through equity research and then getting into the cannabis industry is always that there's always someone that's smarter than you that's going to be able to provide you a ton of information that will shortcut your ability to get to where you want to go, whether it's in a career or a life decision or whatever it is. And if you are proactive on reaching out to those folks, more often than not, surprisingly, they're willing to share their advice, which has been, you know, I think you realize that as you get older and older, but like being able to find those folks that were, are willing to just help despite even like not necessarily having a, a full relationship with you. First off, it builds a relationship, but then second off, it gets you to where you need to be much faster than if you were to go out and try and do all of the digging on your own. Um, so I found that valuable both in cannabis, but then also just um, in, in having like general mentors from my past roles at all their companies. And it's been super helpful. Those are two of my favorite answers that I've heard so far since we've done that. Last time either of you have consumed any cannabinoids? Um, last weekend, I tried the cookies pancake. Uh, pancakes, I actually have it right here. It's sitting across my desk. But yeah, it's called cookies pancakes. Um, I've never tried cookies before, so I just wanted to see what it's all about. It was relatively new to Colorado, I think like last year. Um, and I know the farm that's been growing the strains. Um, so it tastes sweet. Um, maybe like pancakes, maybe might be a self-fulfilled taste, but otherwise good. Bond rating is a good. Uh, let's see. You think about a week ago, I, uh, I had an edible, uh, like a little gummy, uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, fine. And then, you know, went to sleep soonish afterwards and had a nice, nice sleep. So nothing crazy or exciting. The sleep edibles are, are, are the best edibles. The hypothetical smoking up with Trey Anastasia, which, yeah, from the beginning of it, that we'll, we'll see if that ever becomes a reality. The full circle experience. All right, prediction time. 2030, which big operator outside of the cannabis space has now entered the cannabis space and taken a big position? In, are we talking operators to ancillary? Yeah, so it can be anyone that's outside, currently outside the cannabis space that has aggressively moved in to try to claim some market share in any of the verticals or any of the, the revenue opportunities in cannabis. I'll go first. I'll do a maybe a sleeper and then a 
obvious. Sleeper, I think Mike and I have gone back and forth on this, but we're going to see packaging companies live in this oligopoly of like five that own the entire market share. And the idea that someone's going to innovate something completely new and special when these guys have been doing it for decades or even longer um, seems like it'd be really, really tough. And so I expect, I fully expect that, um, you know, the balls of the world will be going in and taking a run on all things packaging, especially given that right now you have just so much just like wasteless plastic and it's really hard to build a packaging company in the first place because molds cost a ton of money and you can't really raise startup capital for it because it's a relatively low margin business. So I like that one from the outside. And I would say like the, I'm not sure, the CPG company just seems like a like too too easy. So maybe I'll hand it off to Mike. I'll, you know, I'll come back. I think of a better one. Yeah, the easy ones are probably, you know, big alcohol and probably big pharma. With the caveat that this all depends on what you know future regulations assume, right? Twenty thirty, though, which one? If you had to take a company, assume by twenty thirty, you know, there's general legalization and interstate commerce. Then you would look for someone with large distribution capability. Uh, the obvious one there is Amazon. I'm not saying that Amazon is a cannabis stock by any means at all. Um, We're going to remove that part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, like, do, do not go buy Amazon for the, you know, the the cannabis long term option <laughs> opportunity. That's insane. They did um, just quit testing their employees, though. Well, that's the thing. Like, but here's the thing. To my point, exactly, that is actually significant in that, like, look, they see. What is Amazon? Amazon is basically a distribution platform of stuff to your house. And they just want to get more stuff through their pipes to your house. So that actually makes perfect sense, assuming the laws go that way and you know they're already set up for it. It's just it's just another brown box to them, right? So yeah, the larger companies moving back. So I don't know if you saw GM also is not gonna you know, test for cannabis anymore, which I think is a positive. That's part of the whole normalization angle. But so that, you know, that, that comes a little, but again, I also assumes, you know, it makes a million assumptions between now and nine years out of how laws actually happen. Right. But that's probably one. And then I think this is more on the supply chain aspect. You'll see more sort of just traditional, you know, traditional companies having like, Oh, when we also have a cannabis division, it's just even just an agricultural division that, you know, we, here's our five, divisions. We've got our oil and gas division. We've got our aerospace division. And now, yeah, we got our plant division, right? Like, which encompasses everything. You'll see stuff like that. But I guess that's less sort of like the one company that'll get into it. But they're, I'll throw out Amazon because they're already, they are involved in everything now. Why wouldn't they be in the future, right? Kellen? Amazon was the one I was going to say. So, but I, I have a backup one. <laughs> Just because like, you know, they're going after the healthcare industry. Like they're Amazon's goal is to conquer the whole world and cannabis is part of the world. So like, <laughs> um, I think Uber, Uber or Lyft. <laughs> um, I know that delivery has high margins and I think it's a really, really attractive business in the cannabis space, right? Um, from a startup perspective and Uber already has the platform and the software and the drivers. And just like uh, Mike was saying, it's just another brown box to Amazon. I think that to Uber drivers, it's just another trip that they can make some money on. As same with the food delivery that that they launched a couple of years ago. So I think Uber is is going to be a mainstay in the delivery space of cannabis um, by twenty twenty. 
2030. <laughs> I'm down to my third choice. Uh, obviously, Amazon and Uber are my go-tos. And for the reasons you said, obviously, it makes a ton of sense for both of them to be in the space. And it's just another addition into whatever they're doing well. And obviously, the theme of this podcast has been understanding what your unique selling point is. And both those companies understand exactly what they do well. And you can provide a massive added value to the industry and kind of take off the burden to the operators because it's just an additional headache for them at this moment. So if I were going to take this company, I would choose Johnson & Johnson, likely for the sleep aspect of it. Obviously, people that need to relax go to some sort of products, sometimes alcohol. And from a sleeping standpoint, if, if there can be some advancements with the CBN and some sort of concoction to help people go to sleep, then obviously these, these large-scale companies are best positioned with their assets now to take advantage of that. And I think that'll be the easiest way to adopt. I think from a mass consumption standpoint by 2030, I don't think it'll be heavy THC personally. I think it'll be one of these other minor cannabinoids that it just becomes a mass adopted and is looked at as like another vitamin into the asset, into the body. So that's my standpoint. Gentlemen, before we wrap, tell our listeners where they can learn more, where they can get involved and get some of this information from MJ Research. Uh, well, then you can go to our website, which is mjresearchco.com. Uh, so, you know, mjresearchco.com. And that has uh, all, all of our research is up there uh, where you can sign up to be a free member where you get some free stuff. And then uh, also the premium signups uh, for the real media analysis that we provide. And also, if, you know, if you're uh, an actual institution, we also offer you know, an outsourced analyst, you know, higher fee bespoke research service as well. That's that can all be found there, and you know, free members could sign up for our uh, our you know regular email list as well, sort of a, a newsletter type thing that we we publish for everyone for free. Yeah, it's one of the few ones that I consume on a regular basis. So I appreciate all you guys' hard work, and look forward to connecting soon. We'll link all the links in the show notes. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having us, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.